You know, as different as everything seems this holiday season, one thing still holds true year after year. Everybody loves holiday scratch-offs from the Ohio Lottery. And with tickets available from $1 to $20, they're the perfect gift for anyone on your list 18 years or older. So, stay safe this year and play it safe with your gift-giving. Give scratch-offs from the Ohio Lottery! Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Please play responsibly. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Allie J. And I'm Crystal O. And welcome to Not Your Token Black Girl, where we recover from spreading black girl magic wherever we go. From careers and cocktails to men and mental health, we're breaking it all down on what it means to wear the token crown. So if you've ever said, I'm not your token, fill in the blank, then this podcast is for you. A fun and witty show that's a little bit shady, but 100% true. It's Saturday brunch combo with the girls in a quick 20 minutes. Now let's get started. On this episode of Not Your Token Black Girl, we're joined by Chelsea Fuller, who is the Deputy Communications Director at Blackbird, and we're discussing the Movement for Black Lives Network and the impact their work is having on the Black community. We have the lovely Chelsea here with us from the Movement for Black Lives, And I'm just going to come out and confess to all the listeners that we were having a conversation before we started recording and I was calling it an organization and Chelsea was like, but we're not. Uh, (laughs) No, no. (laughs) School us, Chelsea, on the ecosystem, the network. What is the movement for Black Lives? Yeah, well, thank, first of all, thank y'all so much for inviting us. Um, this is a, a beautiful opportunity. We always love to um, be in space with, with Black folks and especially Black women who are helping us to help shift and shape narratives about who we are and what our folks are capable of and what our folks deserve. So y'all are awesome and I'm really excited to be here. Um, and really sorry that my partner, um, Tenji, my, um, my supervisor, my comrade um, from Blackbird and from the Movement for Black Lives is supposed to be here, but she's sick. So she says, hey, to all y'all listening. Um, and thank you all again. She, um, she really wants a chance to talk to you too. So maybe we can do a part two. Yeah. Uh, but y'all, the Movement for Black Lives is so, it's just such a beautiful and um, collaborative and nuanced and powerful space. Um, and it was birthed in 2014 out of the Ferguson uprisings. Um, and since that time, it's grown to be this massive ecosystem of more than 150 organizations, alliances, coalitions, Um, of folks, all of whom are committed to working in different ways to win Black liberation and to make sure that all Black people anywhere across the diaspora, um, that they're safe and that they have the things that they have a right to, the things that they need to live safe, thriving lives with their humanity intact. So um, M4BL does the majority of its work in the United States, but we do have um, member orgs um, abroad in places like Johannesburg and London and Paris. So like folks are um, supportive of this work um, in really in really amazing ways all over the world, um, and we're really we're really 
proud and privileged to be in solidarity with, um, with folks in that way. But since 2014, um, there's been constant organizing in communities around the country, led by grassroots organizations, by local folks who know what is, who know what the real issues are in their communities, who know how their people are being impacted, and who are making the the change that's necessary to shift those conditions for their folks in real in real ways and tangible ways, from you know shifting conversations around education and access to education all the way to moving and shaking um, the ground underneath the Supreme Court, right? So the movement for Black Lives is deeply in um, alignment around the fact that we're in support of folks that are doing work at the local level, but we're also very much so committed to deep policy change and to moving from protest all the way to addressing and creating policy ourselves at the highest levels of government. Um, so we, you know, do a lot of really beautiful work across the spectrum of also like art and culture. I'm sure folks have seen the work that we did this summer um, in the midst of the uprisings right after the, the state sanctioned killings of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, the countless black trans women that were killed, like we threw down heavy this summer. Um, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, right, which no one knew would be um, quite this massive uh, in terms of its devastation. But I think what many of us knew is that something like this would, of course, disproportionately impact Black people and impact, impact brown people and those who are living their lives on the margins. So M4BL um, supported the organizing in places like Louisville after Breonna Taylor, um, Minneapolis, and places all over the country where folks were just tired, right? It's been how many years now since 2016? Four years of um, just living in a constant state of fear, not knowing what um, this administration could unleash on our communities. And this summer, what we saw was the power um, of grassroots organizing, of base building, and the power of the movement for Black Lives, because we started having some of these conversations in early 2014 and 2015, right, about what it would look like to rethink public safety, to rethink community safety. We've been talking about defunding the police since Michael Brown's body laid in the street for four hours in Ferguson um, in August, 2014. So to be in a space now, all these years later, where people of all races and all genders and all classes are saying like something has to shift, like something has to shake, right? Um, where we're seeing places like Dallas, where you would never think that something like um, a conversation about taking money away from the police in a, in a state like Texas, where it's happening and there's actual conversations and, and practices and protocols being created um, to address these really critical needs that are rooted in systemic oppression. So like folks have seen both the very high level conversations that we're moving, but also the cultural work, you know, is really centered in the fact that like black joy is a form of resistance, right? So we're really into like um, everything we do, there's some cultural component, like folks have seen our swag. We got um, some beautiful donations from folks during the COVID pandemic. Um, and we use some of that money to send PPE to people, right? Masks that say stop killing us, right? Um, which became kind of like a, a viral thing during um, the earlier protests in the summer. Um, and we have, you know, people from you know, all walks of life that throw down with us from like, you know, local grassroots folks who, who some people may never know to influencers and people in government who are using their platforms um, and using their social media, using their, their brands to help us move some of these conversations. So it's a, it's a really nuanced space. There's so much work happening across all of these organizations. It's hard for me 
as someone on the communications team to keep track of <laughs> to keep track of it, but we do our best. Um, but it's a it's the you know to date the largest social movement in the history of this country, um, and we know that that's because um, of the power of, of Black organizing. Wow, I have so many follow up questions. <laughs> I, I, wow, so I guess I will start with. Um, I have been following the organization for a while and I've been incredibly um, impressed and moved and inspired and encouraged by what you've been able to accomplish um, during the Trump terrorist years. Um, <laughs> I won't call them presidential years. What role um, will this ecosystem play as we go into the 2020 election and where do you see um, your position on the political stage, depending on the outcome. If we go into a Biden presidential term, where, do, where does this ecosystem sit on, on the playing field there? And then how is that different or is it the same? Should we continue in this Trump era? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, so the Movement for Black Lives does, we do have an electoral arm, right? So there's a lot of folks that you know, the question why M4BL has not endorsed candidates in the past or why we have not made a political stance um, in terms of um, how we want people to vote, um, like making suggestions around how people should vote up and down the ballot. Um, but I think our, our broad stance is that the Movement for Black Lives is a home for all Black people, right, across the political spectrum. Um, and that what we are asking for in candidates um, are for them to acknowledge um, the conditions that Black people are living in in, in this country, right? Um, and what it means for folks to actually engage Black people as voters, as members of the electorate, not just as tokens that they grab when they need to win a couple of additional points in an election. So like the Movement for Black Lives, it's not our job to, to endorse a particular candidate, but what we do doors, it do is endorse values. We are voting for conditions. We're not voting because we like one candidate more than another, even though many of us, you know, the humanity and you, of course, would be inclined to vote for some people or others if you are a person of goodwill and good faith. But we are voting for the conditions, right? We want better conditions for folks. But saying that also, um, it is also important for people to know that there is an electoral space in the movement for black lives right a c4 space where we can talk more publicly about um how we're building black political power for people around this country that arm is called the electoral justice project it's led by these dope sisters who many of you probably already know jessica bird who is the founding principal of three point strategies it's a firm committed to helping black women and women of color run for elected office she is stacy abrams advisor she has worked to get many of the sisters that we know and love um, elected to office over the past few years kayla reed is also a founder of the electoral justice project and many folks probably know her um, from her work in ferguson she is from st louis she is one of the most brilliant political strategists i have ever worked with in my entire life and in Fer when Ferguson um, popped off and Michael Brown was killed, she was working as a pharmacy tech, right? So that also just speaks to the power of working in community, of having a place like the Movement for Black Lives to grow and develop um, and step into your, your full, you know, your fullness in, in terms of your leadership. Um, and it's also um, run by Rakia Lumumba, 
who is badass sister in Jackson, Mississippi. She is a part of a long legacy of black political um, power builders in Jackson. She is Chokwe Lumumba's daughter. Um, her brother is the mayor of Jackson. Um, so we are really privileged to have our electoral arm run by these brilliant strategists, these brilliant organizers. And the ways in which we've been showing up in this election in this moment and just in this political moment in general, right? Because I think one thing Kamala said last night is like, we're not just talking about like an election year. Like we're actually, not, it feels crazy to think about the fact we're in an election now, people are actually voting. Um, but you know, once before voting actually started, M4BL has been um, really invested in making sure that the Electoral Justice Project have the space um, and the resources to help Black folks understand like, like there is a way to actually create a political home for ourselves that lives outside of this two-party system that has never valued the Black electorate. It's never voted, um, it's never really valued the Black vote outside of, you know, crunch time and elections. Um, so they've been building and organizing and strategizing for years and years and years. Um, that arm of Infra-BL um, is where the Black National Convention was birthed um, in August, August 28th, which was like the blackest day <laughs> in the history. It was ridiculous. The March on Washington, the Black National Convention, the NAACP had a summit. It was like super black. It was great. Um, that project was a two-year um, love offering in the making, right? And, and the Electoral Justice Project brought that to life. We engaged millions of Black people over a four-hour broadcast. I hope y'all watch it. If not, you can still see it. It's on YouTube. Um, it was produced by Dream Hampton, and there was just like a plethora. It was just a beautiful explosion of Black brilliance. Um, folks talking about policy, right? Like how we're actually channeling the power that we saw on the streets into policy, using that to create political leverage in different ways to having like artists and create different creatives share, you know, beautiful offerings and poems and video and docu-series. It was dope. Um, and that was, that space was really specifically created for us to have a conversation in the midst of this election period about what is the black agenda? What do black people actually need, want, and deserve from any candidate who's going to take elected office anywhere on the ballot from the bottom to the top, right? And moving through that process allowed us to take the vision for Black Lives, which is the guiding principle document, really, um, that was created in 2015, um, to, move, to help us figure out a way, how do we move this vision for Black Lives, which is this beautiful articulation of what we all know we deserve and are fighting for, and move that in such a way where anyone who is running for office has to acknowledge it, but also has to make a commitment to including these pieces of work in their policy platforms. Um, and we were able to do that. We've had conversations with the candidates on um, the presidential ticket, and we've had conversations with electives up and down the ballots across the country um, who, are who are talking about what it looks like to take the vision for Black lives, take this Black agenda, and make it not just something that they're willing to throw their name on, but they're going to weave it into their policy platforms to make sure that people's conditions in the cities that they live in and the cities that these people are governing and change. Um, so we show up, we've been showing up in that way. We've been showing up in the way of helping people that are actively preparing um, to go to the polls on election day. We know that early voting has already started. Um, we know that the assaults on our voting rights are mad real. It wasn't just John Lewis's passing that reminded people that like, we have to think about the assaults on our voting rights, just like we think about the assaults on our physical bodies, right? Our, our other civil rights that are constantly infringed. There are people that are showing up to vote polling places um, to cause people harm, to obstruct them from voting. And we know that that's just gonna continue to increase and intensify as we get closer to November 3rd. 
So Amphibio and our organ all of the organizations, um, many of the organizations in the network are doing voter protection work. They're training people to be poll workers. We're making sure that folks have political education about the candidates on their ballot so they know how to navigate um, voting, who they're voting for. Um, and we're also providing resources to folks, not just PPE, right, for folks that want to go and vote in person in the midst of this pandemic, but we're providing financial resources to organizations around the country that are planning and preparing um, for what will be the most consequential election in history. So Infrabl is showing up um, in this political moment in a, in a very different ways. We are members of a united front that was created by the Working Families Party, which is an independent third party um, that is winning radical, you know, winning radical races across this country, pushing candidates that are making commitments to um, doing things like making commitments to defunding the police, making commitments um, to taking the vision for Black lives and including it in their policy work around the country. Um, Jamal Bowman in New York is a working families candidate. Folks did not think that Jamal would win. That was a huge, huge win for the movement. Corey Bush in St. Louis, right? So like the movement is actually, um, has always been politically strategic. I think folks need to realize that even our elders in the civil rights movement and movements past, like there's never been protest without policy. There's never been policy without protest, right? So it's not just a bunch of young people in the streets making noise. There's always been a political undercurrent that pulled people um, into deeper alignment, into deeper strategy. Um, so all of our work is political, whether we're endorsing candidates or not. Yeah, no, and I'm going to just jump in here because you said a lot of things that I think, you know, really hit some of the high points that I have been trying to share on my little platform that I have, you know, and within my circle, I think the education piece is super important for Black people right now, learning more about how it's not just the president, um, the presidential campaign, right? It's these local elections. It's how can you influence things within your communities, right? I think that's been a big piece that has, that your organization and other organizations have been doing a great job at making sure the Black community knows that, right? And I think another big, another thing is that with um, the Black experience in general, and I know you, you say you're bipartisan, so that makes, you know, with all, or, with all networks, if you will, or organizations, coalitions, whatever, I know it has to be a lot of times bipartisan, but even the Black experience is just so different, right, across the board now during civil rights era. And I think um, I heard maybe Amanda Seals talk about this. During civil rights era, it was very clear cut on what the Black experience was. So it, we were all fighting for, the, for one thing. Now we have so many differing opinions. And because of the, the different layers of the Black experience, that bringing it all together through the things that you guys are doing with um, marketing, education, is the way that we have to go about it. Like it ha there has to be a way to blanket and say, hey, this is, it's not us telling you, hey, vote this way, but let me show you the history of, of your people, right? Mm -hmm. um, to allow you to make decisions. And I think that's been great the way that you guys have disseminated that information. Um, and then you bring up defund the police a few times. And I think that that is something that has been, um, I don't wanna say not, like, I think that the word defund has been so strong that there's a confusion almost, right? Like we hear Kamala Harris say stuff like re-envision or we hear words like divest. Can you shed light? Because I, me, I want to know, 
because I work a lot on my whole stance. I've been down protesting, talking about defund the police every chance I get, right? I live in Austin. There's a lot of protests all the time. I'm down there. Defund the police. I'm all for it. And Austin has actually made, they've done, they've went ahead and done it, right? They've re reallocated funds, if you will. So I want to hear that a little more about that. I know I'm not, that wasn't the next question, <laughs> but if you, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit and what, what's the difference there? Defund, divest, reimagine, like what are, what is your stance with that? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so I think one thing that I do want, I want to name is that, you know, there are folks in the movement for Black Lives in the electoral justice space that, that are very clear about what we need to do in November, right, to make sure that our people are safe. There's a very clear decision that folks have to make on November 3rd to make sure that all Black people, and that all of us at this point, all people, have access to the things that they need to be safe and to live the lives they deserve to live. Um, but what we say, what, what I also want to say is that broadly, even if you don't want, for people who are like, you know, who don't feel comfortable with, you know, the language of partisanship, but what you can do is say, like, we're voting against white supremacy, for sure, right? That is what I, I deeply identify with that. And I, I have, um, along with many of my colleagues, been open to that conversation publicly, right? Like, everyone has to dance the, the C3, C4 line, right, in doing work that's in service to other people, advocacy work. But what I do and what would advise people to say clearly and to think about critically is like, you're actually voting for a, like a system of values. What are the values that you think are necessary to make sure that all of us can live without being afraid that you're gonna get shot by the police or getting afraid, being afraid that you have to make a decision between putting food on the table and paying a hospital bill, right? So like we think about values and conditions, like I'm voting against a white, uh, against the white supremacist um, reign that has basically been terrorizing our people for the past four years. And you can make the decision on who you think that is or not. But to your point about defunding the police, um, there is in no way, shape or form um, in terms of the way that we think about um, the safety of Black people, a reality where reform of the criminal legal system will work. Um, so when we say defund the police, we are talking about a massive reimagining of public and community safety. We know that we need something completely different than what we have. There, you know, reform would work if the system was actually broken. You reform something that might be working, you know, that's a bit askew. You, you shift or you adjust something that at one point was working and then maybe is not working now and then could work again. This system has worked the way that it was supposed to work from the beginning. It's not, it's not in need of fixing. This is the system that was created to make sure that folks of color in this country, Black folks specifically, um, did not have access to their full, their full human and civil rights. They did not have access to um, justice under the law. So the idea of reform is not one that the Movement for Black Lives adheres to. We are abolitionists in the, in the thinking of that systems of oppression connected to the carceral system have to be dismantled. And new systems have to be created to make sure that all of us can actually feel what it would, you know, imagine and feel what it would be like to have people that were in a system, right, a system that was created genuinely to keep people safe. That is not what we have right now. So when the Movement for Black Lives says defund the police, we are talking about 
a process that will take time. No one, I, I don't think I've ever heard any of my colleagues from the highest ranks of leadership to folks in like local communities on the ground say that defunding the police is something that's gonna happen overnight. Folks are committed to a longer term process. And in some places it is moving relatively quickly and that's because there's been work happening there for years and years and years and years. It didn't just happen in June when we said defund the police. It's been, these conversations have been in the works. But what we want people to understand is that it is a longer term process where we're thinking critically about how we are divesting funds from police and reinvesting those funds into other forms of community safety with the ultimate goal of not having a, a, a police state, with the ultimate goal of not having um, a system of mass incarceration that we know was created as a second tier to chattel slavery, right? Like we are not in any way, shape or form confused about the fact that when we say defund, we mean defund. We're not saying defund and meeting, ref and, and meeting reform. We say defund and we are moving toward hopefully one day in my lifetime or our lifetimes, seeing the dismantling of our current system and the creation of something new. That is what we mean when we say defund. So Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are not ever going to say defund the police and mean dismantle the criminal legal system and the system of mass incarceration in this country. That we are, that I am clear on. We have, what I will say is made a lot of progress in the public narrative. It felt very jarring to folks, right? Because we know that the immediate reaction is like, okay, if no police, then who? Like if I call the police, if somebody breaks into my house and there's no police, then who comes? And what we're asking is that folks think really critically about, especially black people, like when in, when in your life have you felt the safest? Have you ever actually felt safe? And an overwhelming majority of people will say they actually don't know what safety feels like, right? So if the current system that you have isn't keeping you safe, then what are you afraid, then what, is, what do you have to lose in taking the steps to create something new? Now, let me ask you a follow-up question to that. Because I, I liked how you said we've made um, progress. Mm -hmm. How do we, or is there a way for us to quantify that? So um, it's often a feeling, but policy change, I'm a data-driven person. How, how can we measure how far we've pushed the needle forward? Or how can we measure you know, that arc that always bends towards justice, how, how arched is it? Are there quantifiable steps in place on this journey to utopia that we can track and say, yes, we are on the right path, or hey, we're starting to plateau, or oops, it looks like we're sliding backwards, in your opinion? I think so, definitely. And I, I think, you know, the Movement for Black Lives takes its charge from local organizers, right? Like one thing that's important I think to name is that you see these massive uprisings of you know, folks across the country who are literally responding to something that has happened in their community or something that has happened to a member of our community, whether we live in that place or not. And I think there's an idea that like national folks are swarming in and swooping in and making these big moments, but local people are making these moments, right? The Movement for Black Lives has a politic that we don't come into a place if there's not already organizers in that community that are part of InfraBL that have called for help, right? So like when you think about the quantifiable change, think about the fact that there are millions and millions of people in each of these cities that we've seen, you know, kind of 
um, you know, implode over the summer because of, you know, the shootings of our folks, right? That's, that's, a, that's a level of quantifiable change that we've gone from a place where the protests used to be 90% black folks to now we're seeing now in the streets right now, a, a diversity of people who are making demands that are in alignment with values that would allow black people to, to live safely and more freely. That is a, quant a quantifiable shift, right? That it wasn't just, it's not just black people saying black lives matter anymore, right? It's people of all walks of life, all races and ethnicities and all, you know, from across the political spectrum to even be fair, right? So that's a quantifiable change. When you see that, you know, people always have a tendency to make comparisons between the movement of today and like the movement of like the 50s and the 60s, it's all the same movement, right? So we think about change in terms of like, the, the spectrum of legacy, right? Like this is a long time fight for black liberation in this country that started when our people were brought here, right? We talking like 1619, like <laughs> legacy work, right? So when folks are like, oh, well, what change have we made, right? Movements take generations sometimes to dismantle things. We're talking about systems that have been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then there's this expectation that like, if there's not a complete eruption or dismantling of a thing right now, then we're not doing anything, right? We are the next iteration of freedom fighters, right? So like folks like Fannie Lou Hamer and Bayard Rustin and Dr. King and all those folks, the work that they did made the work that we're doing possible. So we don't, I, and at least as in my opinion as a strategist, the quantifiable change has to start from, it realistically has to, we have to measure from the beginning, right? So that you can actually say, we're talking about this, we're having a conversation about dismantling the police or like, you know, defunding the police, dismantling the carceral system. The fact that we're actually seeing folks do it, seeing folks make decisions about their budgets, police budgets, taking money out, creating new processes, like all of those things you can count, sure, right? I could give you a list of how many cities across the country are having conversations with their city council about reallocating their police budgets. And that's fine. And, that, and some people, you know, that's necessary. Reporters and, and folks that are trying to tell the story and to capture the story want that kind of information. But when you think about the bigger picture, right, that's the stuff that I feel like we have to be more intentional about quantifying. And then I think it also helps people feel like there's space and room for them, right? Because I think if you think about a movement as something that's making rapid, like reactive react reactive change right now, it can feel like there's no room for you if you're not able to come in and like, you know, stay in the streets all summer or write a, you know, or write a piece of legislation. And that's not true, right? There is space in this movement for everyone who cares about black people who believes that freedom is possible. And I think each person that joins, right, that's a quantifiable shift. Each person that makes a commitment to shift the politic, right? We have seen a tremendous shift in the public lexicon and the national lexicon about the value of black trans lives. Right, we went from a space in like 2014 um, when the, um, the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter, which was started and fueled and the brilliance, it, it exists because of the brilliance of Black queer and trans people, um, that being something that people pushed back against, right? Like, oh, well, if there's not a centralized leader, there's not a, you know, you need some centralized charismatic leader out front. We know what that meant, right? And, and seeing that now all of these years later, um, not that many years, realistically, right? In the, in, the, in the span of like the black existence in, in this country, like five years ain't that long, right? 
to see a, a welcome, a welcoming and, an, and a respect and an honoring of the leadership and the contributions of black trans people. That's quantifiable change, right? Mm -hmm. So I really think it, it depends on how, how you think about it, what feels powerful to you, right? Because it's going to feel there are pieces of these wins because we're winning. It feels like the most devastating period <laughs> in like many of our lifetimes because it is, but it also doesn't mean that we're not winning. We are winning. Right. So it really depends on what you feel is powerful. The arts and culture piece to some people feels mad powerful. Right. Like we have a brilliant um, digital strategist on our team who grew our Instagram over the summer by almost 300,000 people. Right. That's 300,000 new people that are following us, that are listening to us, that are using our iconography to move their people in community and all this different stuff. Like we could quantify a billion things. But the fact that conversations are changing people's um, orientation, um, people's orientation and proximity um, to these values and these principles is changing. Defund the police a few years ago was so radical that people wouldn't even talk about it on the news. Like I would be, I would pitch reporters and want to have a conversation about the work that folks were doing in Minneapolis about defunding the police in 2015. And it was just too much. Now it's on every news channel in the country, right? So quantify it how you will, right? And, and find ways to engage and, and to and to get involved um, that feel powerful to you, that make you feel empowered to, to participate for the long haul. That's what I would advise. And I was mad long-winded, I apologize. No, that was great. <laughs> that was great. Um, because I know Ali and I, we have these conversations and we have these conversations together and with people in our circles and you have two different brains, right? When you're having these conversations, some people want to see the data, want to see the facts. And some people, like you said, it's it's a feeling. We're getting people to open up and have these conversations, which means they're coming closer towards these values that's more qualitative and not quantitative. And so that's why I wanted to ask that question for people who are less about, and, and maybe it's rooted in the PTSD of being Black in this country, where mm -hmm. it's, I can no longer feel because I'm so numb show it to me in the numbers where it's getting safer to be black in America. Show me in the numbers where we have more black legislators. Show me in the numbers where we've got, you know, more policies hitting the dockets to go up for votes. And that's why I wanted to ask that question. Yeah. That's personally, I think it's a blend. I, I like to see the numbers, but it's also, do I feel safer walking down the street with my black daughter? Um, but it is, there is beauty and joy and, and, um, feelings, but comfort and safety in, in data. I had this conversation with my father a few weeks ago who um, was an activist in his own right in his, in his younger years and tries to really stay abreast of what's moving. And he told me a few days ago when I was home visiting um, that he, he was like, you know, like you all are just not, um, you're just not doing the kinds of things that they were doing before. Like in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, you know, we had like, we had these goals, everyone was aligned, everyone was aligned on the goals of like black people moving toward the goals. And then we won the thing and then we moved on to the next thing. You all are not doing that. I was like, that is actually, that is like actually not true, right? Like in the history of black resistance, there have always been people working and finding different entry points to make particular change that moves us toward a collective goal of liberation and, and equity and access and all of the things. But what has shifted, I think, a little bit 
is that there's, there's more space and there's, there's more, um, there's like a principled commitment, I think, to allowing people to show up as their full selves that did not exist in the, in the civil rights work of the 50s and the 60s across the board. Like, for, like we knew the Bayard Rustin, who was a black queer man, is the architect of the March on Washington. People did not start celebrating him and honoring his legacy in the public discourse of black civil rights work until very recently, right? We know that black queer women and black trans people have always been a part of our movements for change. They have been contributing um, from the very beginning, developing strategies that helped us win civil rights in, in multiple different ways in the 50s and the 60s, and never would we have ever heard their names before. So I think where some of our elders and just folks who are thinking about like what the wins looked like in the in in the past, like we wanted the the you know the uh, Voting Rights Act and we organized around it and we got it. That is that is fine, but also like I think people have to take a take a step back and look at the full expansiveness of what's actually happening. Right, we have developed um, just in the past few months. The Movement for Black Lives wrote a piece of legislation called the Breathe Act that is being introduced once Congress is back in session that has been endorsed by several members of the House, including Ayanna Presley, who everyone loves, right? And that's something that folks don't really know about, right? Um, there have been massive local wins. We have moved people into positions of political power through organizing across the country, right? I was telling my dad about Cori Bush in St. Louis, about Jamal Bowman. He didn't know about those people, right? So I'm like, Yes, there are some things in the national, in the national, you know, discourse and in the mainstream media um, that people want to know. They want to know, like, who's defunding the police? What cities is this happening in? How many dollars, right? And cool. But if you actually want to think about what winning looks like and what sustainable change looks like, you can't just look at what's happening in the mainstream. You have to do your due diligence and look across the spectrum of, like, what are people doing to shift the conditions for their people in communities, right? Like, Kayla Reed, who I love dearly as a sister friend, came out of Ferguson, started an organization. She's a leader in the movement for Black Lives, but started an organization in St. Louis where she anchors her work. They closed an entire jail in this summer, right? They closed an entire workhouse in the city of St. Louis that had incarcerated, unjustly incarcerated Black people and people, poor people in that community for decades. Grassroots organizing closed that jail, working with city officials and state officials in the, in the state of Missouri, they closed the jail. Right, those are tangible wins that are moving us toward our collective goals. And no, it's not something like I said, it's not going to be on CNN every night, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. I love that. Amazing. Yeah, I'm literally just sitting here taking it all in because it's like, I think that you're right, it's those little things um, that are really big things, but everybody isn't, everybody is looking at mainstream media. And, you know, it almost, it's almost like the, the wins that are happening within our community aren't highlighted if they're not, if it's not harsh, like defund, you know, and I know that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but yeah, so I'm literally just sitting here taking it in. And I like really love your passion about this. And I know this is typically something we ask at the beginning, but I kind of want to hear um, a little more about your story before we wrap things up. Like, again, I'm like, love your passion. I feel like I, I harness that in the inside, but I'm not as vocal <laughs> at times. Um, but you know, I envy that and I really want to hear how you got there. Yeah. Um, thank you for that question. I, 
I don't think about that a lot anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels, you know, the movement for Black Lives is my political home. I, I am someone who comes from, I guess, what folks would call a woke family. But my mother um, is a professor and an educator and teaches um, the Black experience. And I grew up in a household where I knew who I was very early on, um, which was um, such a blessing and a privilege because going into school, predominantly white schools, without that anchoring, um, I very well could have um, not learned about who I was as a woman of color, as a black person in this country until I went to college. So yeah. um, if I had the, you know, and having the privilege to go to college, right, is, is also something I'm, I, I hold very dear to me because I know um, that that is not something that a lot of our folks have access to and that's not right. Um, so I, I do feel like I'm a child of movement. Um, I was and am a storyteller, right? That's my entry point into this. I am not someone who um, came into this work through like protests, through political strategy. I came into this work through storytelling. I was a journalist um, and still consider myself a journalist. I'm on the board of directors for the National Association of Black Journalists, even though I don't report um, anymore. I deeply, deeply love and value um, and, and just value the, the power of storytelling. Um, I worked as a reporter, I worked as an editor, I worked um, as, a blog, as a blog editor. I have always just loved um, and felt called to tell stories about my community and, and people whose stories are erased and um, suppressed. So even in my time as a reporter, I was, I was covering black and brown communities. I was co covering issues of systemic violence in West Virginia, right? A place where you would not think that a black reporter would have the space or the opportunity to do that. Um, and then I went to grad school. I realized that um, I wanted an advanced degree. I wanted to figure out a way to elevate my um, skills as a storyteller. And I had kind of maxed out <laughs> the journalism skills that I feel like I had done what I was going to do. Um, in that space and wanted something to complement that. I moved to DC, I uh, went to American University and studied um, strategic communications and grassroots advocacy um, and was really, really um, thrilled to be embraced by um, some professors at AU who saw what I wanted to do and knew that there really were only a few places where I could do that. And that's, that's shifted since, which I'm super grateful for um, you know, communications work is not something that's offered as like a viable career to, to like folks of color a lot of times. Um, and I think one of the beautiful things about the work that I've been able to do is that um, strategic communications is such a, is such a nuanced field. It allows you to really bridge, um, bridge gaps and to pull people into their power in some really amazing ways that I didn't even really know were possible when I started this work. Um, so I decided that I wanted to, you know, try working at like a global public relations firm. I did that. Um, I was good at it. I was very good at it, um, very quickly and could have stayed there and, you know, done the whole little, you know, corporate girl in DC thing, which would have been cute. It was cute for a minute. I'm not gonna lie. It was cute. Um, but then Ferguson happened, right? It's 2014. I'm in my cubicle. I had a, I'll never forget. I had a client meeting with the Clinton Global Initiative. That was one of my clients. And a black reporter in St. Louis, Brittany Noble Jones, um, is a dear friend of mine. She's like, a kid was shot, his body is laying in the street and nobody's covering it. 
she sent this through NABJ, a group chat we're in with NABJ, like, please help me get this out. His body laid there for four hours. One by one, Black journalists start in the chat figuring out how to get to St. Louis because the local affiliates in St. Louis would not cover it. Um, she was the only one there on the ground fighting in her newsroom to get them to understand that this was a story, right? Mm. Um, and in that moment, as I'm watching my, my college friends, my, my people who are family to me, um, people like Tremaine Lee with MSNBC, Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large of the 19th, right? Black Wesley Lowry, who was at that time was at the Washington Post. I'm watching my homies one by one get on planes and get in cars and go to Ferguson. And I'm sitting in a sheath dress in a high rise in DC around a bunch of white people who have no idea why I'm crying, who have no idea why I'm upset, right? Who are just like, pull your shit together. We have a meeting. And I'm like, are y'all not seeing what's happening? And I knew then that that, wasn't the, that was not how I was going to use my skill set. That is not the place that I was being called in in terms of using my purpose, standing in my purpose. And I was out, I quit. Um, and found my way to um, doing communications work at the intersection of justice and, and, and movements for change. Um, through the advancement project. So my entry, my, the long of it is, the short of it is I found my entry point into movement through the advancement project. I um, was hired there to lead their work around youth criminalization um, and was there for several years in the midst of what was that really intense moment from like 20, end of 2015, 2014 to the beginning of 2016, where it was like every freaking day, it felt like somebody was getting shot by the police. Um, and I was on the ground in community with organizations that were doing the very best that they could to keep their folks safe during that period from Baton Rouge when Alton Sterling was shot to Baltimore where Freddie Gray was, was shot and killed, Walter Scott. Um, God, it was, it was really intense, but um, really honored to have worked there um, and to have been a part of that team and joined Blackbird um, at the top of 2016, right after um, President Trump was um, inaugurated. And I've been rolling with them ever since. <laughs> okay. I love it. I love it. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. Yeah. We would definitely love to have you and your colleague come back to continue the conversation. And um, I know I'm leaving more educated, more inspired, and that yeah. is the whole point of the platform that we are looking to grow, yeah. um, is for our listeners, our followers, to leave more educated um, and encouraged. So thank you so much for, for inviting me and for letting me kind of, I feel like I went on a bit of a tangent, but it's like, no, you were fantastic. No, it's hard, so no. good. I was just like, <laughs> yes, more, please. Like, yes. it's hard to get me and Allie to shut up, but today it is. that was accomplished. So, so, so I was muting myself. Cause I was like, Oh, let me just sit back and absorb. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, how am I about to get out here and fight today? <laughs> Our people are amazing. Yeah. They really, you know, and yeah when you think about all that we have, all we've survived, all we've oh, accomplished, all we're yeah. still opposed to do, you can't help but be passionate and be overwhelmed. And people like have a tendency to think that like you can't be a part of a movement if you're not radical and if you're not like, you know, covered in kids' cloth and poor, <laughs> oh, you know what Lord. I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? But like, if you care at all about black people, if you, if you feel that we are deserving of, all of the beautiful things that this life has to offer, then there's space for you, right? Because we're, when I think about 
why I'm doing what I'm doing. There's any number of things I could, you know, I kind of wanted to like be an artist at one point. Like I took art classes my whole life, um, my whole young adult life. I played music. And when I think about where I am now, I'm like called and like called into purpose. Like folks that do this work um, don't do it because they don't have anything else that they could be doing. Like these are some of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my entire life, strategic, um, deeply principled people who are choosing to do this because they love black people and they think that our freedom is possible. Right. So when you think about that, I could cry thinking about it. Right. You can't help yeah. but be passionate. Yeah, yeah, no, I love to see, you know, black people, black women coming together like this. And I love now more than ever, you see more conversations like round tables with black women. And I think I've been fighting for this for a long time where I'm like, Hey, black ladies, like, let's all be friends and come together and talk about all this shit that we need to like do, you know? So these type of conversations are super powerful and, and super important. Um, and like Crystal said, like, we got to continue to do it. I can't wait till we can do a part two um, and just discuss like how, even as a conversation about being a black woman and how we position ourselves, um, you know, in our professions that we're in, like how do we take the professions that we're in and make sure that we're letting our voices amplify there as well, even if it's not as being political strategists, right? Like how as a campaign manager can I mm -hmm. show my voice, right? Um, so yeah, I just love these conversations. I, it was really, really great having you on. Um, and, and yeah, I think, can you just tell us like where, or tell our listeners where they can find you and where they should follow? <laughs> yeah. For those of you who want to learn more about um, the firm that I work at, Blackbird, shout out Team Blackbird. You can check out teamblackbird.org. All things Movement for Black Lives um, can be found at infrabl.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Um, our electoral justice work, you can find that at blacknovember.org. Please, if you have time, register to vote, sign up to be a poll worker, figure out how you can support the electoral organizing happening in your community because this election is so critical. Blacknovember.org. Um, and we appreciate and love y'all all so much. Thank you for letting us have some space here with y'all today. I appreciate it. It's been really nice. This is Allie J. And I'm Crystal O. And that's it for this week. Be sure to tune in next Sunday at 12 p.m. Central for another episode of Not Your Token Black Girl. And also be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google. And follow me at Basic Allie on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the Crystal O. Studying a master's degree in Sweden brings connections, new ideas, and new perspectives on the problems facing our societies and every one of us. At Lund University, one of Scandinavia's oldest and broadest research universities, we educate future changemakers in our more than 100 international master's programs. Find out how Lund University is working to improve the world and how you can join us at www.lunduniversity.lu.se slash join us. If you're a defender fighting to protect your organization from cyber attackers, you must be successful ending attacks every single time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. Our future-ready attack platform gives defenders the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats, and the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Together, we are the defenders. Cyber Reason. End cyber attacks. From endpoints to everywhere. Learn more at cyberreason.com. That's C-Y-B-E-R-E-A-S-O-N.com.